Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is Monday, August 8th, 2022. I had to think about the year there. That is the COVID effect in action because for the last two years, life has basically been, I mean, two and a half years, really, life has been uh, completely stolen from us. So there's a part of me that like wonders if it's still 2019. And then I realize, oh, it's definitely not 2019, but that may be the life we want to bring back. But uh, nevertheless, it's never taken me so long to tell you the date before, August 8th, 2022. Unless you're listening in the podcast version of this, in which case the date means absolutely nothing to you and we can just move on. But that is one way of saying you should all subscribe to The Andrew Lawton Show in podcast form. You can get it on Spotify. You can get it on Amazon Podcast. You can get it in Apple Podcasts, Google Play. You can do all of this other stuff. You can even like mix and match and subscribe on all of them, I think. So uh, we thank you to those of you who are subscribed to this. And they're the ones that don't have to look at my face in video, which may be a a real win. You never know. We are going to be speaking later on to Melissa Lantzman, the Conservative Member of Parliament and Transportation Critic, about the situation with Canada's airports, which may may actually result in Omar Al-Gabra having to testify before the transport committee. That's my takeaway from the meeting that took place in, uh, well, it wasn't like, you know, physically in Parliament Hill, but, you know, through the parliamentary process just a couple of hours ago. Before I get into the fun story, actually, I have a couple of fun stories today. I just came across this columnist position for the Globe and Mail. Now, There's a part of me that doesn't actually want to be mean to the Globe and Mail because the Globe and Mail has been very kind to me in the last four weeks by having my book, The Freedom Convoy, The Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the World, at number one on their bestseller list. It's been number one in the Toronto Star, number one in the uh, Globe and Mail, and it was for a little bit of a period number one on Amazon as well. So the Globe and Mail bestseller list has been a very friendly place for me. Nevertheless, Someone sent this to me and said, oh, Andrew, this might be of interest to you. You might want to apply for a job as a columnist with the Globe and Mail. And I was thinking, okay, I wasn't actually looking for a new job, but I, I, I clicked through the link and just see what they're after. And it's a editorial position for an opinion journalist. Now, I'm not going to read the posting in full. They want someone that can do all of this stuff, that can be a thinker, that can be cutting edge. That's all fine. Here's the great part. You know the boilerplate you see in a lot of job postings? They have it here. The Globe and Mail is dedicated to diversity and inclusion in the workplace. The Globe and Mail is committed to fostering an inclusive, accessible work environment where all employees feel valued, respected, and supported. We believe this strengthens our business and our journalism. We welcome and encourage applications from individuals from all groups. It goes on, but that's the gist of it. And you may think, okay, what's the big deal? They're committed to diversity, so is every corporation. The paragraph before that has the vaccination policy for the Globe and Mail columnist. All offers of employment with the Globe and Mail are conditional upon the candidate being fully vaccinated. To be fully vaccinated is defined as someone who has received the full series of a vaccine, yada, yada, yada. So they're saying here that if you want to work for the Globe and Mail... To be a columnist or presumably any other job, you have to be fully vaccinated. 
And in the same breath, they're saying that all offers of employment are conditional upon it. And then, but we're inclusive. We don't turn any groups away. Everyone's allowed to apply. We don't discriminate. And I find it to be fascinating that these two things, no one seems to mind being next to each other. There are very few in the media, clearly, that are going to take umbrage with the fact that you can commit to being an inclusive and diverse employer while also being explicitly not just tacitly, but explicitly discriminatory against a group, the unvaccinated, and that is entirely okay. That is completely fine. And if you want to read the position, it's posted online. I tweeted the screenshot. You have to be a proven self-starter, an authoritative voice, experience, and expertise to weigh in on important social and political issues of the day. But you aren't qualified to do that if you aren't vaccinated. And interestingly enough, I, I also wonder here how they're justifying it because they say that they're trying to be flexible. So I don't even think you need to check into the office. So this is a vaccination mandate for a work from home writer position at the Globe and Mail. But uh, you know what? Congratulations to whomever the successful candidate may be. I got off on a tangent there. What I actually wanted to talk about is Christian Freeland, the deputy prime minister, doing this tremendous display of gaslighting as though Canadians have forgotten the last six months. She tweeted this, and I'm going to try to get through this with a straight face. I can't make any guarantees, but I'm going to try to do it without laughing. Truckers and trucking companies are essential to our economy. <laughs> Hang on, I can do it. I can, I, no, 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 let me, let me go back. Let me do this. Truck <laughs> Truckers and trucking companies are essential to our economy. That's why our government, no, I can't, I can't do it. That's why our government has been working so hard to keep our trucking industry strong. Okay, I made it through. I can't read it again. So you'll just have to read it on the screen there if you want, or if you're listening on audio, just rewind it. That's why they're working to keep the trucking industry strong. So there are a couple of issues I have with this. It is August 8th right now. February 8th was about six months ago, which means we are just a few days away from the six-month anniversary of the federal government invoking the Emergencies Act. And it was Christia Freeland herself, who also sits as Canada's finance minister, who during that announcement got up and said, we are going to freeze your bank account if you have a truck that's involved at the convoy, even if you aren't there who said, we're going to suspend your driver's license. We're going to suspend your insurance. We're going to come after you on all fronts. We are going to make it so that you can't pay your mortgage. You can't pay your employees. You can't make your payroll. You can't even continue to work as a trucker for a time because you dare to protest our vaccine mandate. So it makes me wonder, when she says that they're trying to keep the trucking industry strong, are they talking about the vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers, which was not necessary, was not rooted in science, was coming to an industry that had been dominated by these people that we held up, rightfully so, as our essential worker heroes throughout the pandemic? Or is she keeping the trucking industry strong by continuing to keep that punitive vaccine mandate in place, even as all of the vaccine mandates mandates for air travel, which strikes me as something that happens in a lot more close contact than trucking across the border does, have gone away. And all of the provincial mandates for things have gone away. 
And it's not to say that any of those things were justified, but the federal government's science has always been written on the back of a napkin here, if it even exists in that form that is as sophisticated as that sounds. And I'm going to talk about this in a little bit more detail, but I want to talk first off about the air transit situation right now. I've just been doing a little bit of air travel the last couple of months because I found that everything that has been canceled the last two years, conferences, in-person events, they all seem to be coming back with a vengeance. You've got families that haven't been able to take a holiday in basically three years that are going away on summer vacation. And all of this is coming to the point right now where the airport situation does not seem to be getting significantly better. There was uh, one story that came up uh, today, which I, I almost found laughable, as Toronto Pearson Airport bragged about how only 44, or no, not only, how, you know, a whole 44% of flights last week left on time. And this is something that is being trumpeted as an achievement, that less than half of the flights scheduled for Pearson left on time. And sometimes the delays might be you know, 10, 15 minutes, maybe the delays are hours and hours. And you compare this with the fact that some airlines are lumping everything under this broad category of not being in their control so that they don't have to pay compensation to passengers that are displaced. Well, a committee of members of parliament is looking into the airport situation right now. They had a brief meeting today, and it sounds like Omar Al-Gabra, the transport minister, will have to take their questions, which is a step in the right direction, but it's like the whole 44% thing. It might be a step in the right direction, but I wouldn't call it a solution. Joining me now is the conservative MP and transport critic, Melissa Lansman. Melissa, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. So, I mean, let's start Let's start with the 44% number here. Is this anything that anyone should be happy with? Well, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, that any progress at Pearson, like you said, is, is meaningful in any way or has improved in any way for, uh, for any passenger travel. We're still, we've made international headlines where, you know, Pearson being the worst, Montreal being uh, second worst. I don't think that's a metric that uh, anybody wants to be on. And I think, you know, we're at the peak of travel season still. And so the government could let the peak travel season peter out uh, and, and, and claim victory. But I, I think the damage is uh, done on our reputation. I know many people who will avoid Pearson at all costs. There's an economic challenge too. I mean, one area where airlines try to make money is by letting people connect through Canada. So you could theoretically fly from Heathrow to New York and have a layover in Toronto. I don't think any traveler is booking an itinerary like that now. You've got people that, and this is anecdotal, but it's happening in large enough numbers that I don't think it's inconsequential. People that have said, you know, I, I'm just going to hold off on my trip now because I, I just am seeing all the horror stories of uh, baggage terminals and customs lines and, and not wanting to do it. And, you know, the reality is that all of these different problems are coming from different places. We've got problems with staffing in the airlines and with customs shortages, and we've got uh, problems that exist at other airports as well. I mean, Heathrow and, and Dublin have had their challenges. How much is at the government's feet, in your view, the Canadian government's feet? Well, look, I, the government is, uh, you know, they control CATSA, which are the guys that check, uh, that uh, screen you. They control CBSA, which are, uh, which are primarily the backlogs in, uh, uh, in our customs hall. Uh, you've heard stories. Uh, you've probably, you know, I've, 
I've seen you, I've seen you internationally in the last little while. And I, I, I'm not sure that if you've had uh, problems getting off, but they're holding people on planes for much longer. So the government's abdicated its responsibility by, uh, by, by touting these metrics. And we're just not sure, you know, what these metrics are, are based on, you know, 15 minutes through security. Well, is that based on 24 hours where for six or seven of those hours, there's nobody that goes through uh, security. We have a lot of questions for uh, for the minister. Today, we had a uh, committee meeting to call the minister. We'll see the minister before the 19th of uh, uh, of August in front of our committee for uh, for two hours. And uh, we'll, we'll ask him about the inconsistencies on uh, on our check-in standard, which is nowhere else in the world. Does anybody tell you to come to the airport three hours uh, uh, early? Or, uh, you know, what he said on, on critical issues issues facing our airports, like whether, you know, he's, he, he talked about none, none of this being uh, staffing or demand. And then he's, he talked about staffing and, uh, and demand being the, the problem. We're not even at a hundred percent of our travel. So the fact that we're number one and number two for the worst, that's uh that, that's a huge problem for our economy. It's a huge problem for uh, travel and tourism. And it's a huge problem that doesn't seem to be going away for travelers. When you mentioned the timeline earlier, I think that's a very real issue. I mean, the big family vacations are going to be done in basically four weeks' time when kids go back to school. And I, at that point, I think it's a race to see how much we can make this work so business travel can pick back up. And then we're looking at you know how Thanksgiving, long weekend, and, and then Christmas. But I mean, at this point, if the government is in denial that there's a problem, at least publicly, a solution really isn't on the table. So how much more can you get from a government that's been, you know, so ostrichy about this and just sticking its head in the sand and, and not really addressing this, even if the minister is going before your committee in a couple of weeks time, Max? We want to see that this doesn't happen again or that it doesn't continue to happen. Uh, business travel is, uh, you know, is, is almost uh, is almost back or certainly is returning. And you've got to think that if you're coming here from New York or from Pennsylvania, uh, and, and it's an hour to get here and you're three hours on the, on the tarmac, nobody's going to want to come. We want to explore issues like ArriveCan. We've, we've called for scrapping that, uh, uh, that app and we haven't seen any movement or any even accommodation from, uh, from the government. So again, lots of questions, lots of things to fix. And we want to ensure that if we do face the situation again, that we aren't caught off guard like we were. Yeah, I think that's a, a huge, huge problem here. And it sounds like someone's in the background has been on the tarmac a little bit too long. And I'm, I'm totally sympathetic, I, I must say. But the Arrive Can one is huge. And again, the government is really with the Arrive Can, and they haven't owned up to it, but it's clear that they're trying to make this a permanent fixture of travel. And again, the inconsistency. They're telling us this speeds things up, it makes things easier, but all it does is, is put more barriers when you have people that haven't traveled in, in two and three years that are not particularly savvy, they aren't technologically capable necessarily and they're trying to do all this for the first time and, and you're right I mean you, you've traveled obviously I've traveled we we sort of have, have tried to keep up with what the rules are and, and stay within them but for a lot of people that haven't done this they, they turn on the news all they see are the examples of things that are really telling them why now is not the time to travel and it's incredibly unfair to people that for the longest time couldn't travel because of quarantine restrictions vaccine mandates uh, couldn't travel because of the COVID situation Situation. They didn't feel safe and healthy. And now the thing that's holding them up is entirely, entirely manageable and preventable. For sure. The, the government has the, the government has staked its it, frankly, it's, it's entire border economy, again, on a $25 million app that they've, uh, that they've paid for. And it's not only just the, the non-con, 
people not having confidence in being able to use it. There's real issues. Perhaps you don't have a smartphone. Perhaps English and French isn't your first language. There's been no accommodation. Even making it voluntary would be at least a step in the right direction. That if the government claimed this app would work, then maybe the maybe people would actually use it. But the, we, we don't have that option, and we've seen it. Uh, I've been to Windsor, I've been to Niagara in the last couple of weeks, and we're seeing you know, there's no American plates at the, at the duty-free. There's no American plates uh, coming over the border. Uh, motor coach traffic is, uh, is down to, you know, maybe one or two buses uh, a day, whereas you would see 40 in this uh, peak travel. So the problem is very real. And the fact that the government's not addressing it, not talking about it, and not even acknowledging it suggests that I think they're completely out of touch. Yeah, I think you're very right about that. I know you've been putting a lot of the pressure on yourself uh, against this government, and I would encourage you to keep it up. Uh, obviously, we need some reckoning here. And again, this is affecting people that aren't conservative, that aren't liberals. They just want to live their lives. So uh, something's got to give. Melissa Lansman, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. That was conservative transport critic Melissa Lansman. And I have to point out here that when we're talking about, I mean, Arrive Can is, I think, one of the biggest examples of just creating hurdles, creating barriers. And, you know, if you've done this thing multiple times, maybe it's not that difficult for you because you log in, it has your information safe. But there's, I think, a principal aspect here, which is that you are not supposed to need to basically ask the government permission to come back into your own country, which having this thing as a requirement is basically predicated on that very premise, that when you're coming back to Canada... If you have not done this, you will be fined thousands of dollars. And sure, there are all these videos circulating on Twitter now of people that get a lenient border guard. I just saw one this morning. And, you know, they get a lenient border guard They who just waves them through when they haven't done it. And that's fine. But the whole point is these things are not supposed to be where you have to be having a really good day to avoid paying thousands of dollars to enter your own country. It's supposed to be that you can show up and if you have a Canadian passport, you can just hold that passport up and come into your country. Maybe you got to pay customs or duties on this. But the whole point is this is not how it's supposed to work. And nothing... Nothing right now in this process is working. And in some ways, I agree it's insensitive. We have an inflation crisis. We have a cost of living crisis. Travel that involves a vacation by air. I mean, air travel right now is a luxury for a lot of people. And I'm not trying to be insensitive to those who are not able to travel right now, to those who don't feel safe traveling, to those who, for whatever reason, because of, you know, vaccine mandates or, or whatever the case may be, are, are not traveling. That's fine. But but I'm saying that there is right now an issue and, and people are trying to move. People that have been safe saving for two, three years. They've been trying to go on a vacation maybe since 2019, but they had, or they booked it in 2019 and they had to cancel it and rebook it and cancel it and rebook it. And right now, the issue is not some other country's entry requirement. The issue is not the vaccine mandate. The issue is a government that can't get its bleep together. We're doing a live show, so you can't censor it in real time. A government that can't get its bleep together to such a point where people can then continue to carry on and travel and live their lives as they did before. And when, when interestingly enough, we, we hear talk about how demand is through the roof, supply hasn't yet caught up. I live in London, Ontario. 
And it used to be that if you wanted to fly anywhere, you could go to the little London, Ontario airport, which I absolutely adore. I love the London, Ontario airport because there's never more than like two people in front of you in the security line. But it's a busy airport. It, it is a busy little airport. And they used to have, I don't know the exact number, but I think it was like 10 flights a day on Air Canada alone that would go, you could go to uh, Ottawa directly, you could go to Montreal directly, and then you'd have like uh, seven or eight options to get to Toronto to connect to a flight that's going somewhere else. And WestJet also has a bunch. You could fly to Toronto, you could also fly to Calgary direct, and there are some other smaller airlines like Swoop that service London as well. That one, at the height of the pandemic was down to one flight a day. They canceled the Montreal, they canceled the Ottawa, and you could fly to Toronto at 6 in the morning, and the flight from Toronto back to London, Ontario, left Toronto at 9.30 p.m. and got in at, you know, 10.05 p.m. or 10.10 p.m. or whatever it is. But the reason I share that with you is just to say that at the height of the pandemic, when COVID restrictions had decimated air travel, they slashed that service by 90%. Right now, demand is through the roof. Every single London, Toronto, Toronto, London flight I've been on has been absolutely full, in some cases overbooked. But they only have like three a day now. Maybe four, but I think it's at three a day. So there's an example. 2019, 100% 10 flights. 2020, early 2021, down to one flight. And now they're up to three or four. But the demand is there. The people are there. And that's just one airport, one airline. You then expand that. A lot of those people's, oh, wow, the London to Toronto flight's full. Let me just drive to Toronto and get on there. The security situation, that is within the government's control. The border screening, that is within the government's control. The mask mandate, (laughs) this is a hilarious one. So I didn't realize this until last week, but the federal government quietly got rid of the the mask mandate for airports. So you no longer have to, by law, wear a mask in an airport in Canada. And I only learned this when I got off a plane in Montreal. This is when I came back from Albania, where I covered the Free Iran Global Summit. And I was walking around and I was saying, well, this is great. I mean, no one's wearing a mask. The passengers aren't wearing masks. And then I noticed the staff weren't wearing masks either. And I'm like, okay, is this like, has Quebec just finally become the rebellious province I wanted it to be all along? And and then I, I looked it up and realized, oh my goodness, You actually don't need to wear one of these in an airport. And then I got to Toronto, and in Toronto, the airport was mandating a mask above and beyond the federal mandate. Now, I didn't comply with it because, again, if the federal mandate's no mask and they can't really arrest you for it, that was all I needed, and no one questioned me, no one stopped me. And the mask mandate, I don't think, is slowing things down, but it's a reminder that life is not back to normal, and I think that the government is trying to prevent people from traveling. The government is the biggest barrier to normalcy. The government is the biggest barrier to living the life that was robbed of us the last two and a half years. And I mean, people have said on Twitter this little conspiracy, I don't even know conspiracy is the right word, but this conspiratorially thinking sort of theorizing thing, okay, a conspiracy theory, that the government is trying to basically prohibit travel without coming right out and saying it. The COVID gave them a great opportunity to uh, have us not fly because, you know, of our emissions and all that. And I don't know if they're that competent. I, I don't know if they're that capable. But what's true is that they don't believe their own crap. 
Government does not believe its own nonsense. And if you want proof of that, just look at Justin Trudeau getting off the plane in Costa Rica for his family vacation. Did you look at that? Do you know what I'm looking at? I see Justin Trudeau's face. And I see everyone else's face. And I see his kid's face. I see the RCMP officer's face. I see lots of people's faces on there. And I'm, I'm not used to seeing that around airplanes. I, something might, I don't know, maybe the camera was wrong. Maybe it was like one of those x-ray vision things. Or maybe they weren't wearing masks. Now, I should say, Costa Rica does not have a mask mandate, let alone one that applies to airport tarmacs. They were not masked on the tarmac. But can we play that clip one more time, just the, the first couple seconds of it? Okay, so it's possible that at the exact second they crossed the threshold of plane not plain. They rip the mask off in one motion and it's nowhere to be found in their hands. They like just, they rip it right off and put it behind their back and leave it on the floor of the plane so as to give the illusion when they walk off the plane that they were unmasked the whole time, but they weren't. They were totally masked. I mean, maybe there's something like as you walk past the threshold, as you walk through that door, there's a machine that comes and just snips the, snips the little elastics on the ears and the mask just flies off, and it's like maximum freedom, maximum facial freedom. That is possible. Or, if I may posit an alternative theory, just one alternative theory, that they weren't wearing the mask on the plane. I know, I know, it was more realistic to think of like the magic little robot thing that snips the ear loops, but I think, I just maybe, ju just hear me out, they might not have been wearing masks on the plane. Now, what's the big deal, Andrew? You hate wearing masks. Yeah, well, that may be true. But I have never mandated someone else wear a mask. Least of all, mandate that they wear a mask on an airplane. On a Canadian Armed Forces Challenger plane. I have never made that a requirement of air travel. They have. So the fact that Justin Trudeau and his family... <laughs> would be put on a no-fly list and greeted by law enforcement on the tarmac if they were to behave that way on an Air Canada or WestJet flight, but not on their own private family vacation, suggests they do not believe masking is as required to preserve safety when you're traveling through the airwaves towards your beach vacation as they perhaps pretend otherwise. Again, I'm not ruling out the magic airplane ear loop snipper machine. This is an entirely plausible feature of it. If we're, if we're going just really just pie in the sky idea, they just might not have been wearing a mask on the plane. That's technically possible. But, but surely, surely they would never stoop to such levels of hypocrisy. As my late friend Kathy Shadle said when I used to point out, but it's so hypocritical when the, the left did this and Justin Trudeau did that. Uh, she said to me, Andrew, you're, you're overthinking it. It's liberals. It's different when we do it. And that really does explain a lot of it, is that th these arguments of hypocrisy really just don't seem all that compelling because they don't care. They genuinely play by different rules. 
When Christian Freeland wants to be the only one at the G20 summit wearing a mask, that's fine. And then when at the same summit, when Justin Trudeau is having a private audience with Queen Elizabeth II, the 90-something-year-old woman, and he's unmasked, that's fine too. And how dare you question that? How dare you point that out and say, well, maybe the masking outdoors and the meeting with the, the nonagenarian indoor thing, you, you got it a little backwards. No, it's just they play by different rules. And it's that simple. So for the rest of us who are forced to go along with this, who are thinking about maybe we don't take the Costa Rica vacation because I don't know if my bags are going to make it home. I don't know if my bags are going to make it to Costa Rica. I don't know if I'm going to be thrown in the slammer because I didn't do the arrive can right. And then you see Justin Trudeau just waltz off the plane for two weeks in Costa Rica. And that is something that to Canadians is just life going back to normal. I should have been more specific. When I said I wanted life to go back for, back to normal, I meant for everyone. I didn't just mean for the Trudeau family. That, like, that was, again, my bad. I should have been more specific. I didn't want just them to be the beneficiaries of normalcy. But that is exactly where we are right now. It is unbelievable. And again, it's, it's examples of gaslighting. Same as that tweet from Christian Freeland I started the show talking about, where we are to believe that this government is pro-trucker and is doing everything it can to protect the trucking industry while uh, throwing truckers' licenses away, while imposing vaccine mandates on them, and while freezing their bank accounts. And if you point out the double standard, well, you're the hater. You're the bad one. Just before we close things out here, I want to say again, thank you. I've been trying to pepper this show with a bit of gratitude to those of you who have sent me your tweets and emails and Facebook messages saying you have enjoyed reading my book. You can see it over my shoulder there, The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. And I should say there is a new cover that just came out this week that we'll throw up on the screen there. It's got a little edit, just a little change. We haven't changed the coloring, but we have changed and added that little gold stamp there that is a number one Amazon and Globe and Mail bestseller because it is. It's been a number one on the Globe and Star list for the last four weeks. And hopefully it will continue going, not because I wrote this for any sort of commercial success, but I wrote it because I thought it was a story that needed to be told. And I was uh, so proud and I'm so proud and happy that I had to play a small role, or got to play, I should say, a small role in telling that story. So uh, if you haven't picked it up, you can get it on Amazon. You can't get it on Indigo Store shelves because they are still, for inexplicable reasons, banning it from their hallowed store shelves. But you can get it uh, from the Indigo website if you want to give that company your money, or Amazon, or Sutherland, SutherlandHouseBooks.com. And I am so grateful. And I'm going to actually, on Wednesday, if you're in Toronto... I'm going to be doing a little event at the Albany Club, and you can get details on, on the Albany Club website if you want to come on out to that. But that does it for us for today. We will be back later this week with another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, including an interview with UCP leadership candidate Brian Jean. That is coming up in the days ahead. We'll talk to you soon, Canada. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.